You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I've been captivated by Ephesians 5 as a whole, but I want to pick up in verse 11. I want you to listen to the words, please. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments. Think about empty arguments. All right, let's empty arguments, arguments that lack substance. Arguments that are just determined to ignore historical facts, to ignore what is true, and just simply win. Are you with me? Empty arguments, arguments designed to achieve an agenda regardless of what is true and good. Those are empty arguments. Let no one deceive you, trick you with empty arguments. For God's wrath, we don't like to talk about that much, but God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. You see that? Therefore, do not become their what? It's up here. They're what? Oh, it's not up there. <laughs> it's in your Bibles. Therefore, do not become their partners. Do not become their partners. Do not partner with empty arguments. Do not partner with deceptive people. Right? Partnership here in the Bible, and this does not mean like you can start quoting that whole good compa- or bad companionship corrupts good habits thing. That, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about intimate fellowship. This is talking about joint partnership. This is talking about intimacy. Partnership here has to do with absolute connectedness, right? Do not let them become a part of you. For you were once... Okay, now you can read this with me. For you were once in darkness, or you were once darkness, I should say, which is intriguing, that, that language, like as, as I prayed. But now you are what? Read it with me. Light in the Lord. Therefore, we need to do what? We need to walk. Walk as children of light. Not sit, not stand, not lay down, not sleep, not rest. Walk. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light, meaning what the light produces, results in what? All goodness. Come on, what else? And Now, the word righteousness here has to do with rightness. It has to do with justice. We talked about this many times for the last seven years, and we'll keep doing it. The word righteousness here has to do with rightness. You ever use the phrase, you did right by me? Ever heard that phrase, do right by him? That's what righteousness means, doing right by others. It means justice, doing justly. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light results in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And here's the thing. Read this with me, please. Discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness. Don't continue to perpetuate and repost and share all the empty arguments. Rather, expose them. Expose them. I've been captivated by this text, mostly because of the discerning piece. Discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. It seems like discernment is a lost art. And I wonder if it's because many of us have stepped too close to the darkness and our eyes have adjusted to see, although dimly, right? In a society of fake news and alternative facts, I wonder if we're becoming incapable of discerning what is true, good, 
and beautiful. Right. Perhaps it's because many of us have unwillingly, unwittingly changed partners. Maybe we've misplaced our hope and our peace and our joy in a fragile kingdom. Kingdoms of this world. Causing us to inadvertently misplace our allegiance to a fickle and faulty king. Misplaced allegiances result in misguided discernment. So if we wonder why sometimes we cannot discern what is good and what is true and what is right, it might be because we've misplaced our allegiance. As Paul suggests, if it doesn't result in goodness, righteousness, and justice, it isn't of the light. That's pretty plain, right? If it's not good, if it's not just, if it's not true, then it's not of God. It's not right because God is always good, He's always just, and He's always true. So we would think that that would be simple enough. We would think that that's the way to discern. Discerning what is true, good, and right is easy. You determine that if it's not true, not good, not right, it's not good, therefore you do not participate in it, you don't embrace it, you don't, you don't promote it, you don't perpetuate it, you don't give in to it. The end doesn't justify the means in Christianity, and it is a misnomer to think that Christians are stuck to the lesser of two evils. Christians shouldn't do any evils. And a Christian should never just try to escape the means. It's not how we roll. It's not how Jesus lived. So there's nothing good about hatred and fear-mongering. There's nothing righteous about treating women as though they're sexual objects and, like, and acting like it's okay. There's, there's nothing truthful about scapegoating or shaming. There's nothing truthful about explaining away facts or historical evidence just to fit your agenda. These behaviors aren't the results of a person walking in the light no matter their confession. That's the point of the text. And it is the result of walking in darkness and evidence of a different partnership than partnering with God. And if by chance we cannot see, perhaps we need to open the Scriptures and turn to the Gospels and discern Jesus again. We need to see Jesus. In another letter Paul wrote called Colossians, he said that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God and that the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and that He was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Christ. In other words, Paul is saying God looks like Jesus. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Looks like Jesus. If you want to know what living under the reign of God looks like, if you want to know what goodness looks like, righteousness or justice, Our truth looks like, it looks like Jesus. Before truth was ever a position, before truth was ever a proposition, truth was a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the what? Truth. He is the embodiment of truth. So if it doesn't look like Jesus, it's a lie. That's the way this works. And if we want to know what it looks like to live under the reign of God, to be the kind of person God wants us to be, we look to Jesus, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who issued the Ten Commandments, including the one that said, Thou shalt not make any other images for yourself, have any other idols, came and made His image into a person in the fullness of a person that we know as Jesus. 
Jesus lived in a society of alternative facts and fake news. He did. He just didn't have Google or Facebook. It wasn't maybe as confusing in some ways. Maybe it was more. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I do know that he lived in a world where evil was called good and good was called evil, where darkness was mistaken for light and light, darkness, where bitter was called sweet and sweet was called bitter, and where it was believed that war led to peace and peace led to war. Caesar had convinced the people that he was the son of God and Lord of Lords. Rome had convinced people that the Pax Romana, which is the words peace of Rome, was their hope. The Jewish leaders had convinced the Jews that they were the experts in all matters of life and religion. They had convinced the people that if they wanted to get right with God, then they needed to follow their lead or be left out. They promoted a political ideology that convinced them and the people that the promised Messiah, who would be the king of Jews, would come and lead a violent revolution to overthrow Rome. And then the kingdom of God would stand. That was the day. That was, that was the day in which Jesus lived. That was the news, and those were the facts on the ground. But then there's Jesus, right? There's Jesus whose life revealed to us what is good, right, and true. There's, there's Jesus who the Scriptures tell us preached in the synagogues and demonstrated the presence of God's kingdom in Galilean neighborhoods. He, he taught that God's kingdom doesn't operate like the world's kingdoms and that any news contrary to this should be considered as fake, Right? He proclaimed forgiveness of sins and practiced hospitality with sinners. He, he made the blind to see and the disabled abled. He strengthened weakened hands and straightened crooked legs. He, he touched the untouchable, welcomed the unwelcomable lawbreakers. He hugged the hurting and he held the children. That's what Jesus did. That's what God did when he put skin on. No wonder why Jesus' own disciples didn't understand him. His family couldn't explain him, and the religious leaders couldn't stand him. He was called a drunkard. He was labeled out of his mind. He was rejected by the religious right and lambasted by the religious left. Just like today, people then were trying to describe and explain people based on their party, politics, and ideological categories, like conservative and liberal and progressive and all that nonsense. Jesus lived in that world. They just called him a drunkard and a Beelzebub. They called him names too. I was giving a devotional to a bunch of children at a private school, and I asked them what were some of the names Jesus was called, and they went to all the positive ones, right? Like Prince of Peace and Advocator and Lord of Lords and King of Kings and all these really good, and they were, I praise God for that, but they, nobody said these things. Nobody, nobody said he was called a drunkard. Nobody said he was called a lunatic. We pretty things up sometimes. And maybe that's why we fall victim to the darkness. Especially if it glows. Right? We're drawn to it. For some people, Jesus' life and teachings were difficult to understand and explain. His testimony of what God was doing in the world and how God was doing it didn't line up with the facts that were put before the people by the Jewish leaders and by Caesar and by Rome. 
To some, Jesus was just fake news built upon a naive understanding of how the world works. Yet 2,000 years later, things haven't changed much. We live in a society where we still call evil good and good evil. Where we mistake darkness for light and light for darkness. Where we call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. And where we still think war leads to peace and peace leads to war. So no wonder why we rarely actually see what is good and what is just and what is true. Yet the good news for us is that Jesus is still preaching in churches. He is still demonstrating the presence of God's kingdom in our subdivisions. He is still teaching us that God's kingdom doesn't operate like the world's kingdoms and that any news contrary to that should be considered fake. He is still proclaiming forgiveness of sins and practicing hospitality with those we consider the worst of us. He is still causing the blind to see, but reminds us that those who can see can still go blind. He is still making the disabled abled, but reminding us that those who are able can disable themselves. He is still strengthening weakened hands, but reminds us that sometimes what we call strong hands are actually weak. He is still straightening crooked legs, but reminding us that straight legs can walk crooked paths. He is still touching those labeled untouchable, loving those branded unlovable, and welcoming those judged unwelcomable. He's still at work. And we are His people. And we know this to be true because we've seen Him do it, haven't we? Have you seen Jesus do any of this? Come on now, have you? Has He done it for you? Come on now. We, we need, surely help us out now. I don't know. There we go. That's what I'm saying. It's just like, I, I need you. See, just a few lines before Ephesians 5, verse 8, Paul says this. Listen. Well, it's actually on the screen this time. It's in verse 1 and 2. Read it with me. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Look at that. Now read that again, as dearly loved children. As dearly loved children. Not just loved children. Not just children, but what? Dearly loved children. As dearly loved children. Paul was looking for an adjective. He didn't know what that was, but he was looking for something to describe. He was looking for something to describe love children. Because I, I could see that he, you know, he had his, he had his Mont Blanc quill and he, he wrote it down and he, and he wrote and he thought like loved wasn't enough. And so he probably threw the papyri away. He actually probably didn't write, but that's getting technical. Somebody else probably wrote it as he dictated it because they had a sight problem. But nonetheless, he probably, I'm sorry, he, he, he probably had it written down and it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough to be like, love children. No, no, no. I can see him pacing. No, no. Not love children. I need something else. And, and so he dearly loved children. Like he needs us to see that we are not just loved, we're dearly loved. Like no matter what we've done and where we've been and who we are and what we, what we think we're becoming, we are dearly loved children. So as we discern Jesus in order to discern what is true and good and just, we need to discern grace. You need to know grace. 
You need to know that you are a dearly loved child to the degree to which you and I know that we're children of God is the degree to which we've discerned grace. Like, do you wake up in the mornings realizing that what you have is not what you deserve or are you one of those people who think you've earned it? Come on now. Come on now. I mean, are you one of those people who, who wake up every morning and think somehow that, that the prayers that you're able to pray are just like, just they just should happen, they're just ordinary and normal? Or do you not realize that the God of heaven and earth who is holy and right and good and just has invited you in? He's just, he's just welcomed you in. Have you ever woken up and realized that you didn't get to choose where you get to live for whatever reason in God's grace and provision you plop down here? I don't know if you literally plop down or know how that works. But you're here? Okay, do you wake up beside the people you love or even have loved and realize that it's just grace? Man, it's just grace. You ever thought about the fact that you get to come and sit in a comfortable chair in a four-walled, roofed building with a sign out front that says the word Christian? That it's grace. But we give other people credit, don't we? And we give others credit for these things. Sometimes take the credit ourselves. Because we still think war leads to peace. It's grace. Can't explain it. I can't deny it. It's scandalous and it messes with you. We were once in darkness. Look at the text. Stumbling around and tricking ourselves, tripping ourselves up, ignorant of God's love. We were once in darkness, stumbling around and tripping ourselves up, thinking that we could find love and peace in other people or other pursuits. That's who we were. Were. Say were. I hope it's were. And that's Paul's point. Let it be were. Because who you are is a dearly what? Child. We were just as vulnerable to fake news and alternative facts as anyone else, thinking somehow that Caesar and his empire was our only hope. And many of us still are. Should be who you were. Not who you are. We were spending our lives trying to accumulate as much as we could, somehow thinking that our worth was wrapped up in our bank account because we make more than others or have more than others, and somehow that creates a category of lesser than and better than. Were, not are. Paul reminds us this is not who we are, it's who we were. We've been rescued from the darkness and brought into the light. And if we find ourselves tripling and stumbling, it's not because it got darker. It might be because we changed the focus of our eyes. We're no longer limited to the fake news and alternative hopes the kingdoms of this world has to offer. We've been freed and rescued into the kingdom of God where the light of Christ's presence has revealed to us what is good what is true, what is just. We can see it. We can see it in Jesus. We see it in a church that seeks to welcome the unwelcomable and love the unlovable and allow the tensions of faith to exist rather than quickly try to resolve every one of them just so we can say we're right. 
We see this in a church that's not afraid to say what is right and what is wrong. The fact of the matter is, we are known by God and loved by God. As majestic and as magnificent as he is, he is deeply concerned about little old you and me. He knows how frustrated you get because of your hair or lack thereof. He knows how lonely you are when you lay in your room. He knows how miserable you are when you're at work. He knows how tired and frustrated you are when your children are just acting like a bunch of crazy kids. He knows how disappointed you are when your spouse doesn't live into an expectation. He knows how ready you are to leave this side of glory as though you were still here. You were not lost on him. You were known and you were seen because the light of Christ has revealed you as a child of God. And then, once you've discerned grace, you've got to walk. We've got to walk. We've got to walk in light. So Paul gives us this text, right? He warns us to pay attention to those with whom we align our allegiance. I've shared this with you before, but faith understood rightly is not just intellectual assent or belief. It is about loyalty. The word pistis, which is the Greek word for faith, was used interchangeably with words like allegiance and loyalty. More pledged loyalty. Faith is about allegiance. It's about where I am placing my hope and for whom I am living my life. Or for what? And so Paul warns us in the text, he does, he warns us to not live as blind by partnering with those whose works do not bear witness to goodness, truth, and justice. And although our world still calls evil good and good evil, still mistakes darkness for light and light for darkness, still calls bitter sweet and sweet bitter, and still somehow believes that war brings peace and peace brings war, we should have come to see a different light. We should have come to see a different way of being in the world and understanding the world. We should have come to see that because we've seen Jesus. Right? Come on, right? I need a charismatic brother and sister this morning. Who do we have? Right? We've come to see a truth-telling, peacemaking, self-giving love embodied in Christ himself through Jesus Christ as Lord. And as Paul says, we then should be the people exposing the claims that say otherwise. Not giving in to them. Not reposting them. Not sharing them. Not watching that channel longer than you ought. Or turning to it at all. That's the implications of this text. I can't just stand here and give us nice feel-good platitudes or theological ideas and abstractions, this has to have boots on the ground. It's got to look like something because walking as children of light have to look like something. And the something that it looks like has to produce goodness and truth and justice. It can't be church-going. It's got to be bigger than that. It can't be giving the right answers and quoting the right verses and winning some sort of Bible debate. Our discernment of what is good and just and true becomes irrelevant. Say irrelevant. And it becomes idolatrous. Say idolatrous. When it is not used in service of loving God 
and our neighbor, including the friendly neighbor sitting next to you and the enemy neighbor sitting somewhere on the other side of the world. And I know that's inconvenient, but welcome to Christianity. And for those of us who are parents, we have to model this to our kids. We can't just talk about it. We got to show them. They got to know what it looks like, man. For the rest of us, we got to do this for everybody else too. So how do we expose them? Well, some of us think that we expose the darkness by being louder than the darkness. You know, all caps. <laughs> yeah, because you don't get italics on that social media stuff, do you? That's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, talk louder than them. If you read the whole text, and you go back up to the top, it tells you what to do. As dearly beloved children, be what? Imitators. Imitators of God. It's like Paul is saying, Fred, if it doesn't look like Jesus... You're doing it wrong, buddy. This is the walking in light. You can see, brother and sister, you can see. You can see. I know the darkness may be around you, but you can see. The light of the world is there. He's right there inside of you through his spirit. You can see. The scripture is a lamp unto your feet. Just in case you have no resource. We got to have the courage to call things by their right name use things by their right use, and love our neighbor as Christ has loved us, and be tellers of truth and practitioners of light. That's the prayer we're going to pray every week. We demonstrate the presence of God through tangible acts of compassion, justice, hospitality, and love. What's the Greek word for hospitality? Come on. Come on now. I got self-esteem problems. What's the, what's, the, what's the Greek word for hospitality? We talked about this so many times, it was ridiculous. Yes, 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 yes. Who, who? Yes, yes. I, I love you. Philozania. Philozania. Philozania is the Greek word for hospitality. Anybody know what the word philo means? It's actually two words made into one. Anybody know what the word philo is? It's kinship love. Kinship love. So hospitality has something to do with kinship love. You know what the word xenia is? Or xenia? It's the word for stranger. So hospitality, biblically defined, is a kinship love for strangers. Now, you know what a stranger is? Yes, good. a person you don't know. So you know who that includes? In the words of my grandmother, everybody. <laughs> includes everybody. It's a kinship love for strangers. And you want to know about hospitality? Is this actually a command in the Bible, not a suggestion? Pursue hospitality is the Romans 12 commandment. Anybody know what the word pursue means in the Greek? aggressively hunt after. This is more than making sandwiches and inviting church folk over to dinner. This is more than a New Year's Eve party that you're going to attend or invite people to. Matter of fact, it's more like you going to a bunch of folks you don't know and inviting them over and welcoming them into your life with a kinship love. That is the command of Christianity and it has to look like something. That's why anybody's welcomed in this church because I ain't Jesus. And neither are you. It's his church. Anybody's welcome here, period, at the end of the sentence. 
And before they get right, everybody's got to get right if that's going to be what's required to get in. And last I checked, that ain't it because we are saved by, welcomed by, received by, and loved by what? Grace. That's all I know. I don't know much, but I know that. It's got to look like something. Allison said, when I die, that's going to be in my tombstone. It's got to look like something. Because I know that everything I tell my son has to look like something. And I know that everything that I, in all my frailty and fragility, attempt to offer you from the Scriptures, is that it's got to look like something in my life first. So how do we expose the darkness? Not through loud talking. And certainly not through perpetuating false lies and understandings and ways of the world and explaining away and embracing the notions of lessers of two evils and thinking that the means isn't mattering to the end. We live differently. Through humble and loving rhetoric, we remind people that God's kingdom does not operate the way that the world's kingdom is. It doesn't operate like the United States of America. You've got to call it what it is. We've got to say that all can be forgiven, even the worst of us, because we have been forgiven. We've got to say it, and it's got to look like something. We've got to welcome those that society has judged unwelcomable. We've got to help the blind to see and the disabled be able. We've got to join them in their struggle. We've got to walk for people sometimes when they can't walk for themselves. We've got to carry people sometimes when they're too tired to walk. We've got to see for people who can't see. And you know what? We can. You know why we can? Because we're living in the light. We should know. We've got to strengthen weakened and weakened hands and straightened, straightened crooked legs. When people are hungry, we gotta give them food. No matter where they are from or how they became hungry or what our line item says in our own budgets. When they're hungry, they gotta eat. When they're thirsty, they have to have something to drink. When they're naked, they need clothes. When they are lonely, they need presence. When they are hurting, they need healing. They need hope. And you and I are the ongoing extension of this as the body of Christ. And you and I have it available to us. You have it. And I do too. See, every week when we come together, we practice discernment. Did you know that the Eucharist is the table of discernment? Again, I, I want to remind us, you know why I call it Eucharist, right? Like why I, I call it Eucharist, communion, and Lord's Supper, but you know why I use the word Eucharist, right? Because of all the calling and all the things we call this, that's actually the most biblical word. It's actually what it was referred to in the Bible. Eucharist is the Greek word for celebration. This is a celebration. It's the Lord's Supper, 
where we commune with Jesus as gracious host in one another. That's how it all comes together. But every week when we gather, every week, this becomes a rehearsal of the gospel we proclaim. You know what I mean by rehearsal, right? How many of you did art, music? Raise your hand if you did art or music. Okay, see John. Um, <laughs> see, see John and do art and music. How many of you played sports? Okay. How many of you didn't do either one of those things? See, y'all are ashamed. <laughs> You're like, man, if I, wasn't, if I wasn't a musician, I wasn't athletic. <laughs> How many of you uh, studied to make good grades? Come on, I'm helping you out. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's me! Yes! We do that. This is, this is our time of study. This is our practicing. This is our rehearsing. Because you and I, no matter where we've been, are welcome to the table of grace. Right? Come on, charismatic folk, right? Yes, we're welcome to the table of grace because the bread represents what? The body, the cup. And so who's the host of the table? Who owns the table? Who serves us at the table? And who do we come together with at the table? Come on, look at y'all. That's it. Like, this is the most this particular service has ever talked. The elders aren't going to know what to do with themselves once we get back. Like, what happened to first gathering? Yeah, we come, to, we come to Jesus as a people, and do you and I get to choose who sits there? No. Do we get to measure everybody up before they come? Then why on God's earth do we do it every other day? That's the point. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. So, so here we practice not doing it. Raise your hand. Come on now, let's be real. Raise your hand if there's somebody in this church you struggle to like. Raise your hand. Come on. I got mine. I, I, I do this. Every week, you don't get to choose whether they come. Right? Every week, this is practice. This is rehearsal. Every week, when you hold on to bitterness... And do not forgive. You come to the table reminding God isn't bitter. He freely forgives. You've been forgiven. Learn to do likewise. Every week when you come to this gathering with something in your heart towards a brother or sister, you are reminded to get it right before you come to the table because you're coming to the table. Every week, whatever table of demons you sat at during the weekend, Whatever thing you did that was of darkness, you were reminded of light, hopefully convicted to not go do it again. Every week, this is rehearsal. This is a practice of discernment. Every week.